Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Learning, education, knowledge acquisition. These are wondrous things. Someone once said that knowledge is power. I believe in my heart that it's a freeing enterprise, hence the phrase, the liberal arts. The liberal arts are supposed to be the arts that free the human mind. Open us up. I believe in education so much that I haven't stopped being in school for 33 years straight. Either that or I don't like myself very much. So why is it the case for me, a big believer in education, why is it the case that when I was a kid, I hated school so much? Maybe it was because I didn't have the, the kinds of teachers that would nurture and care for me like I did later in life or or maybe it was the kind of curriculum. I remember being in fifth grade in science class. We were studying the periodic table of elements. The teacher went around the room and asked each student to read the periodic table that was assigned to them, and then you had to say it out loud to the class. And so I was sitting in the middle of the class, which gave me the opportunity to count how many students were before me, to then count and figure out which periodic element I would have to say aloud. Because as she often told us, many of their names were tricky. I found that I was having to talk about nickel. I thought, that's easy. I know a nickel. It's bigger than a dime, smaller than a quarter. And then she was getting nearer to me. I started getting a little nervous because there were some hard words prior to mine. You know, in the fifth grade, I was pretty gullible. Maybe I'm still gullible, but I was definitely gullible then. And when she got to me, she said, now this is a real tough one. I was so gullible, I didn't pick up on the sarcasm. 
And I just assumed she was being sincere, that it was a tough one. And I thought, well, it's obviously nickel. So if it's tough, it must be something different. And so I said very loudly with gusto, nickel. Four times the laughter that you just gave, the class gave. Five times the laughter you gave, the teacher gave. Her face was bright red, and she laughed at me, and she called me Nikkel the rest of the year. The teacher was calling me names the rest of the year. I was embarrassed from that moment forward to ever raise my hand or to ever speak out or to offer something. If education is good, we must also conclude that it is good education that is a good thing, for education can also be done poorly. I'll never forget playing baseball with my dad as coach. When I was a kid, he had a ubiquitous neighbor, a nickname, neighbor, nickname in the neighborhood. They just called him Coach because he was such a good coach, and he was always coaching sports. And I, I just marveled watching him work with players, and not just on a talent or skill level, but on a personal level. There was one particular practice we had where there was a kid who was new to our team, and he was getting picked on by another player on the team. And the kid who was getting picked on went off. He started hitting the boy who was making fun of him, and he, he was going after him. My dad raised and lowered his voice at the same time, like he was so good at doing, and it made everyone kind of stop, and it made the boys stop, and he pulled the boys apart. And he took the new kid, and he sat him down, and he looked at him, and he began talking to him about the rules of playing on the team. Well, firstly, we don't commit acts of violence on one another. And we're a team, we're there for each other, and all this, that, and the other. And then the boy started crying. Well, he was always crying, but he started crying even deeper. And my dad looked at him, and he said, you're better than this. And he began to sob uncontrollably. I don't know why I could hear him, but I could. I was listening in. I shouldn't have been. But I heard the boy say something like, I'm no good. I'm a no good, dot, dot, dot. And my dad knelt down next to him and looked at him in the face, put his hand on his shoulder and said, who taught you that? Who taught you that? It's untrue. Not all teaching is good teaching. Not all teachers are equal. Not all curriculum is created equal. And if you're probably of my generation, in your head now, you, you have those immortal words of Mr. Miyagi floating around your brains. He says to Danielson, there's no such thing as a bad student, only a bad teacher. Now, St. Paul is concerned with the teaching that is going on in the church of Colossae. He's been proud of these younger Christians. They, they have endured and maintained the faith that they've learned from a very great teacher named Epaphras. But the context tells us there's someone or some faction that's polluting the apostles' good teaching, and it's concerning. St. Paul is concerned because he wants them to have the right kind of teaching so that they can live the right kind of life and thus maintain the right sort of hope. It is true, as it's often said, that right action follows right belief. Yet another truth remains. Since the beginning of the faith, all the way up until the present moment where you and I are today, the good heritage of Christian teaching is often the target 
and has succumbed to all sorts of pollutions, false teachings, and strange, unhelpful syncretisms. Quite simply, most of us take in a diet of information daily that's not purely Christian. If I were to be generous, and let's be generous for today's sake, I would say that it's a 10 to 1 ratio. Every 10 bits of, for every 10 bits of information that's formational to your spirit, only one of those bits can we call properly Christian. Again, I'm being generous. Think about all the places where we receive a diet of information that tells us who we are and what's wrong and what's the solution and how to think. Every time you get in the car and you click on to talk radio, I'm certain that you're getting a diet of something that forms you. Every time you sit in your recliner and turn on the local news, I'm telling you, you're getting a diet of something that's formative. When you sit in bed at night because you can't sleep and you scroll through your social media profiles, you're getting a diet. When you walk in your neighborhood or you get stuck in traffic and you tune into podcasts or Audible, you're getting some information. I'm told there's a rumor that some of you still take the newspaper. Good for you. It's good when you dump a bunch of fried fish and potatoes on it and put vinegar and salt on it. I'm told some of you still buy books. Raise your hand if you still buy books, actual books. There is hope for the world. We watch films We binge watch Stranger Things. We listen to pop music. We have text conversations. There's conversations at water coolers. Some of you study TPS reports. Some read legal briefs. We all go to professional meetings. I can go on and on, and so can you, with the avenues that feed us information about what is supposedly important, who we are, what's wrong, and what's the solution. And I venture to guess Only a fraction of the information that we get on a daily basis or weekly comes by way of going to church, worshiping together, reading Scripture, studying together, or individually fasting and praying, contemplating, or meditating. Now, most scholars aren't really sure what the the polluting influences are that are creeping into this church. We just know that they're concerned that there are some. And St. Paul tells the people to remain firm in the good teaching that they've been given because that good teaching has led to their salvation, because that good teaching has given them a proper kind of hope in tough times, and it has redeemed them for the kingdom of God. We're not sure exactly what the bad stuff was, but I can say this today with some confidence. I can point to many, and I'm sure you can too, modern, negligent, teachings that threaten the Christian faith and Christian communities alike. Off the top of my head, here's one. A culture of consumerism, commodification, and convenience. Whether consciously or unconsciously or whether we like it or not, we have been shaped by the culture of consumerism, which means something. It means that the good life might be found in finding the next newest thing, which is interesting because if that becomes the mindset, then we never find satisfaction. We never find satisfaction in even divine things with God. We're always looking for something more. 
Oh, and think about the evils of this when it comes to community. We tend to treat churches more like a place of services and goods. This church does not have all the services and goods I want, so I will leave it behind and go find another one. And the ugly part is that means we're making people a commodity. All of this is supposed to be really, really, really materialistic. But what I find interesting about our culture is that it's not materialistic at all. Materialism is supposed to be the love of material goods. Do you know where you find real materialism according to the Christian faith? In the Christian faith, it is God who takes on the material goodness of life and redeems it. That's materialism. That's love for creation and material life. The culture of materialism that we're really talking about when we think about consumerism is one that actually doesn't really like things. Think about it. You really want the next pair of sneakers. Any sneaker heads here today? Okay, not so much. You want a boat. Or, let's put it, be honest, you're at Macy's and there's a sale on ties and we all need more ties. Point is, is you tend to only want the thing until you have it at home. And then you want it less, and it fades over time, only to be replaced with something else. Friends, that kind of mentality that's crept into our faith has disconnected us from each other. It has made us not satisfied with God and not satisfied with the world. Second, pollution in the life of uh, contemporary Christianity is the banal imagination that lacks openness to transcendence. I hope not to go too deep here, but let me say this. I said it's a banal imagination. I'm saying it's boring, but most Christians have self-reported in Pew and other various uh, formats that they're okay believing God created all this stuff. We're even okay thinking that Jesus was special and special stuff happened around the time of Jesus, and maybe we're good enough thinking that Jesus will come again, but the times in between are kind of, well, we're just kind of happy thinking that God is up there somewhere, real far away, and not much happens here with God. We're just waiting. Oh, friends, I know that we have said since the beginning of the faith that our God is a transcendent one, but that doesn't mean that God's far away. It means that God is other. To be technical, transcendent, if God is truly transcendent, all that means is this, follow me, it means that God is not bound by the same thing that you and I are bound by. And what are we bound by? Space, time, materiality. So what I'm trying to say is this. What Christianity really teaches is that God is transcendent, which means that God is so different to you, is not bound the same way you are. It means that God can be closer to you than you are to your own face. You won't escape God. The third, the third that I'm struggling with today is the self-centered, self-interested, protective, defensive moral imagination. I don't know why we're so defensive, but it's crept into the church. I mean, frankly, the church is supposed to be a place where we risk everything because love is risky, but we're afraid. And so we think first about protecting ourselves. We think first about our interest. We think, we think first about, about as far as the end of our nose. And here's the worry I have with that. 
It's that we're not allowing the spirit to move. How is the spirit moving when it pertains to issues that we don't find about in the Bible? How is God's spirit moving now in communities that don't look like us? How is the spirit moving in making us step out in faith rather than lock the doors in faith? There are many more friends. You know it. I know it. You're probably thinking of them. But allow me this assertion for a moment. I believe if Christian teaching were to be held onto by all of us today in a way that wasn't polluted by so many things that pull away from it, I believe that people would look at us in the wider world and think us to be truly radical. If we were to practice Christianity in our world today unmitigated, unpolluted, we would be radical and strange to the world. The fact that we're not might indicate that we have some pollutants in the water. I've asked you to sit and listen for a few moments today, but if I could ask you to take something home, it's this. Each one of us would do well just to go home and go about our week asking, where have we been polluting the gospel in our minds? How can we be more faithful to that teaching that the apostles handed down How can we cling on to that? Because Paul says to the people, that's where the salvation we've been given is found. That's where our hope is found. It's it's not in material goods, for instance. It's not in protecting ourselves from everyone else, for instance. That's a good practice. And then if you'll do something else for me, I'd like for you to take a moment to be grateful that you come to Peachtree Christian Church. We're in a tradition that I find beautiful. We're the disciples of Christ and more broadly the Stone Campbell tradition. And there's something I I love about it. It's predicated on unity amongst Christians. And so we have this phrase that we often say, and if you know it, just say it with me. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. It's that in the essential things, in the things that St. Paul is talking about, the things that Epaphras taught, the things that he wants the Colossians to hold on to, in those things we hold together, we're united on. In opinions, and there's a whole lot more of those than essentials, there's grace for liberty. But in everything else, whether opinions, essentials, or disagreements, you know what? We ought to be committed to love. It's a beautiful and abiding teaching, and it's unique in churches today. That's why I'm here. You know, I've I've taught this to many groups at Peachtree Christian Church. We're kind of starting out trying to figure out what it means to be a member of this congregation, and I got a good question that stumped me. Someone raised their hand and said, what's an essential then? You think I'd have some essentials just ready in my back pocket. But then I was thinking to myself, wow, the truth is, is a lot of Christians don't often agree on essentials, even us disciples. But, you know, even though we're a non-creedal church, which means that in our foundation we weren't big on creeds, the reason was because you almost started a new creed every other day of the week when you disagreed with somebody else. Even though that's the case, our founders still leaned on the creeds that were first articulated by the ancients, because they're summaries of the gospel. 
today, friends, I, I, as part of this message, my last and final plea is for you to stand and to turn in your hymnal to page 358, or hymn 358, which is actually called the Nicene Affirmation of Faith. As we are thinking about hanging, you can stand, you got a green jacket, you can stand. That means you're a master. As we say these words together, we're actually doing a couple things really profoundly. We're following Paul. We're challenging ourselves by reminding ourselves to hang on, hang on to what we've been handed. And you know what else we're doing? We're standing on the shoulders of the church that's handed this down. This was originally penned in 325 in order to articulate how Jesus was divine. Pentecost has been our celebration of the Holy Spirit making the church. We are the church today, and we stand on the shoulders of the church that's gone before us, and they have said this creed many, many millions of times over. So let us share it together as it is our faith summarized. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and our salvation. He came down from heaven was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the Apostolic Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As you go about your week scanning through your life, remember to cling on to the faith as it's been handed. Remember the things that pollute. Cling on so you can have the right hope that Jesus is making all things new and will come again for you and me.